Duncan, that was awesome. Good job. Sovereign is a hard word, so good one there. Good morning. Oh, wow, that was really good. It's so great to have all of us together today. I actually love children in worship services as a speaker because when they talk, I can only assume that they're talking about the sermon. So there's no other thing that I can imagine they'd be talking about, so it's really encouraging to me. So don't feel like you need to shush them. Like, they got to talk about it. Uh, As we take a final look at Ezekiel this morning, uh, it's it's the end of our summer series in Ezekiel. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you so very much for the picture of of your body that is in this room, Lord, that from the youngest to the oldest, that we are a reflection of you. Lord, I pray that we would enhance that reflection as we study your scripture, that we would know you more, that we would hear from you, that we would know what that looks like for us collectively as a church and also for us as individuals. Lord, speak to us and help us to know how to respond in your name. Amen. Yesterday was my niece's birthday, which I don't tell you that because it was like a real rager. Uh, It wasn't at all. But I tell you because it was a a really big deal, not only because I had plans on a Saturday, uh, but uh, it was a particularly important birthday. So it was just her first birthday, whatever. It's actually her second. It doesn't matter. Uh, But what was really important was that her older sister, who's three, I've missed every single one of her birthdays. And so there was a lot of pressure on this one. The first time, her first birthday, her, her older sister, I missed the birthday because the day before I was over helping them set up and she gave me a gift that year, which was illness. So I was like flat on my back, couldn't go to her birthday. The second birthday I said, hey, I got this thing, I'm gonna be late. And I was not just a little bit late, I was three hours late. And if you've ever been to a kid's birthday that's from like noon to three, it ends at like, 12 or 259 like it there's no like just hang out afterwards so when I got there I got there in time for presents that un that you know they unwrapped the presents had cake and it was done like I was there grand total maybe 15 minutes so that was a little bit disappointing to her parents uh and then the third one we we organized around my schedule. Like I pulled my calendar out, we picked this date, and then at the very last minute, this unexpected work thing came up and I was out of town. So I've not been to one of her birthday parties uh, at all. So there was a lot of pressure around this birthday that I would be there, that I would be on time. And partially it's a big deal because I love birthdays. I talk about my birthday all year round. Uh, I have coworkers that know the, the month, day, and year of my birthday and don't know how to spell my last name, which is fine. If you have to choose one of them, choose my birthday because I talk about it so much. It's great. Uh, I'm not a total narcissist, so I care about other people's birthdays a lot too. So I'll talk about yours if you tell me when it is. Uh, but I also don't want to be the aunt that's in no photos. Uh, like I'm there on Fridays when no one's taking photos and then miss all the big events, which, you know, when you're two, the only big events you have are birthdays. Like, and I'm not in any of the other, other child's photos. So yesterday it was a really, really big deal. I was on time, I brought a present, I was there the whole time, which three hours can last an eternity at a child's birthday. Uh, but I was there, I was in. Thank goodness for second chances, which in this case it was really the fourth chance, but you know, there's not like a saying of thank goodness for fourth chances. Don't you just love second chances? That opportunity to get it right this time 
We root for second chances athletically. If you've ever been to a track and field event, that when it comes to the field portion, they get multiple times to do their thing. Pole vault, discus, long jump, like they get multiple times and you're like, yeah, you're gonna do better this time. If you were at all watching football in the early 90s and you saw the Buffalo Bills go to the Super Bowl four times and lose four times, you were like rooting for them. Like at least by the third time, you're like, I don't even know anything about the Buffalo Bills, but come on, third time, you're gonna win this time. They didn't, they still haven't, but still, you're rooting for them if they go again. We take, uh, academically, we take standardized tests more than once because we think we'll get a better score the second time. We watch movies that speak of second chances. If you have Netflix in here, you know that Netflix really wants you to see Always Be My Maybe. Uh, it keeps telling you that they recommend this for you, everybody. It's this trending hit rom-com that is not only a story about second chances relationally between the two main characters, but the movie itself encapsulates a second chance. It's this second chance toward a fresh, more accurate image and narrative of the Asian American story. We love this stuff, the second chances that are a little bit better. Whether it's A Christmas Carol, Back to the Future, or every boxing movie ever made, there's something about our humanity that pulls us towards these stories that tell of a second chance. That give people the opportunity to right the wrong to get it right, to try something again after failing, or just do a better job than the first time. It's this same poll that makes our study of Ezekiel this morning so compelling, because from the first time it was told to its present day, it's a story about second chances. If you've been around this summer for the summer Bible study on Ezekiel, you've heard that Israel is in an existential crisis. The three most important things to the Hebrew people are their king, their land, and the temple. And after a 30-month long siege, Israel is taken into captivity, also known as exile, by Babylon, and they feel like they've lost everything. Their home, the holy city, everything that's familiar and unique to Jewish culture has been destroyed the king they're told to follow is not their king, but rather the king of a nation that's oppressing them. They've been taken from their land or their home that was not only a gift to them from God, where they lived for approximately 500 years. Just for context, our nation is 243 years old. That's a long time, 500 years. Their families were born and buried there. Their houses were there, their jobs were there, their pets were there, and their temple was there. The temple is more than just this beautiful building that was created with specific instructions by God, but it's the place that they had waited centuries to build. They were aching to build it. It had stood for 400 years and was an institution of Jewish culture and identity. And most importantly, it was the place where the Spirit of God dwelled. The temple was a constant physical reminder that God didn't live somewhere beyond the stars, but with his people. To make matters worse, while they're in exile, they've recently received the news that the temple has been destroyed. So not only are they not there, the temple's not there anymore either. It's in this state that God tells his people through, a, through Ezekiel of a second chance. And this isn't a chance for them to get it right this time. This isn't because they've done anything or haven't done anything, but because of who God is. God is a God of kept promises, 
of intentional purpose and intimate presence. God reveals these things about himself in the midst of the biggest loss of their generation. When they are hopeless, hard-hearted, distancing themselves from feelings of concern or remorse, when things are tough and overwhelming, they're asking the question, who is God and where is God? Many of us are fortunate enough not to know firsthand what the Israelites are experiencing, but there's more than one way to lose a home and to lose a sense of religious or, or cultural identity. Personal tragedy, trauma, or even just the act of growing up can disconnect us from the physical and emotional places of safety. Loss exists on a spectrum, but it is universal. So all of us can identify and empathize with what the Israelites are going through, what some of us in the room are going through with ourselves. As we look at who God is in the midst of loss and tragedy, it's worth noting that he is saying very clearly Whose fault it is doesn't matter in this particular situation. There are other places where that matters. In this situation, it does not matter. Decisions we've made that result in our lives being more complicated, hurtful, sad, lonely, or painful, or circumstances that are outside of our control that seem to be negatively impacting our lives, even no matter whose fault it is, it remains true that God is one who restores, has intentional purpose, and intimate presence. So let's look at the three of these. So God is one who restores. The very, in the very beginning, God bound himself to humankind in two very significant ways. The first, we talk about all the time, him placing his image on us. It's this mysterious image of God that's talked about in Genesis 1, 26 to 27 in the creation account. This image is the first way that God commits himself to, human, to the human race. Mystery and ambiguity shroud, like, what is the image of God? Can I see it with the naked eye? Like, is it a thing? Is it a personality trait? We don't know. But whatever it is, it's how God initially is relational with humankind. He's placed a part of himself on every human being. It's the first way that he bound himself to us. The second is the promise or the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 17 that God would make Abraham the father of the nation of Israel, and in turn, they would be God's people and he would be their God. Initially, this was for the biological nation of Israel, and then subsequently, it's for Christians. For all of us who identify as followers of God, it is a defining part of, I, of our identity. We're God's people, and in some mysterious way that, again, is very hard to understand, we are a reflection of him. We're part of his family God's story is bound in our story, and ours is bound in his. So in Ezekiel 32, 22 to 24, God calls the Israelites out about this. He says, hey, we're bound together, and you've been profaning me. You've been saying all of these terrible things about me. You've making these poor choices. You have this ongoing disobedience, and that reflects poorly on me. And God is not saying this because he wants to be more popular, like he wants to be the cool God, nothing like that. He's saying it because it's not true. It's not a true reflection of who he is. In their recent past, Israel has been blatantly disobedient, which God responded to by following through on what he said he was going to do. In the beginning of uh, Isaiah, it's actually quite comical if you don't think about having to live into it, but it's pretty comical in that he's saying like, hey, 
stop doing what you're doing, and if you don't stop what you're doing, I'm going to have another nation come in, and you're going to go into exile. And so he's now in this space where it's like, well, I told you. Like, I told you I was going to do this. I'm just being a good steward of relationship and doing what I said I was going to do. But in response to this, God does what he says he's going to do, and in response, the nations mock him. They say that apparently God is either an incompetent God or he's betrayed his people. It's how they interpret this this situation. The world is seeing this snapshot that the Israelites have been taken out of their land, lost their king, and their temple is in ruins. So surrounding nations assume that it's because Yahweh is not very powerful. Because it's to their own understanding of how patron deities are resident landlords. The job of a patron deity is to help you stay in your land, to defend your turf and home. But this is not the correct conclusion to draw about who God is. In fact, the whole reason that God sent the Israelites into exile in the first place is because they're worshiping other gods, kind of a no-no from the beginning, but specifically they're oppressing the poor. And this is such a great injustice to God that he went to any lengths necessary to make sure that that wasn't the testimony of his people, that his people wouldn't be known as those who oppress the poor. Humans are bound to God, and God is bound to humans. God's activity is played out in the public arena for the world to observe and draw their conclusions. And God will neither allow idol worship or injustice on the poor, nor will he have the nations knowing only of the profanity of the Israelites and therefore concluding that he is inactive or he doesn't keep his promises. So he restores. He jumps in and restores. One of the many reasons that God keeps his promises and restores is because we're bound to each other. We tell each other stories. The testimony of the lives of the Israelites or our own testimony is a testimony of God, which if you think about for very long, really makes you think about what you did this week and how that reflected on God. That the fact that we are a testimony of God doesn't mean that we only tell the good things of life and hide all of the, the bad things, though we should tell the good things of life, definitely, or that we shouldn't let people know that we're Christians because then if we mess up, which we know we're going to, how will they think of God? Like, take all those bumper stickers off your car because sometimes I don't drive in a Jesus way. Or that we should control the story and only tell people things so that God doesn't look bad. But rather, the fact that that God is a testimony in our lives brings freedom, especially in our painful situations, to be honest about what's going on, where we're at, because that story will also have aspects of how God is at work to restore, because that's who God is. Biblically, whether it's the story of Job who lost everything but his life, Joseph and Paul, who were unjustly imprisoned, Ruth, who lost her nation and her husband, or any one of us, God will keep his promises to remain our God in the midst of whatever life holds because we're bound to him. We tell his story, and he is a God of restoration. Just sitting at home thinking for two seconds, I thought of all sorts of stories within our midst where this is true, where restoration has happened. Countless stories of how God has restored bodies that were broken, sick, or hurt, relationships that for all intents and purposes were over, addiction that didn't seem to be controllable, or loneliness that had just been resigned to. Those were just a few that I thought of off the top of my head. 
And for those of us who are prone towards cynicism, which if you ever have a moment and Google cynicism in Seattle, turns out we have a problem with it. So fight that. Uh, so those of us who are prone towards cynicism, cynicism or those who are in the midst of the trial who just can't see what it looks like on the other end, what it would look like to get through it, how God is going to restore, know that none of those stories, the ones that I could think of, though I'm sure there's many more, none of those stories are tidy. And none of those stories are done being restored. They're beautiful. God is at work creatively redeeming, and he's still at work in those places. And he does so with intentional purpose. To revitalize his name, God could have very easily just moved the Israelites back to Jerusalem. Move them back to the land and have it done. His name would be cleared. Nations around would go back to thinking that he was a powerful enough deity to give them their land back. They were wrong the first time, but look, he can get them their land. But Yahweh is not just about land. He has a bigger purpose for those who are in, uh, in his community and for those who are outside of his community. And for both of them, it's a story of restoration. Had God just given the Israelites their land back, it would have been tempting for them to think like, oh, God gave it to us. He did this divine intervention because it's what we wanted. We were making such a big stink. He had to do what we, what we asked him to do. He sent us back. But that's not the message that God is trying to convey. In fact, he's rather adamantly, Duncan read it in verse 32, saying, I'm not doing this for your sake. I'm sending you back, but it's not for your sake. He reminds them that they should not forget their disgraceful conduct. Disgraceful conduct is a pretty harsh word to hear from your creator. He wants them to repent. He wants them to change their ways. And if you read the whole of Ezekiel, you know like, oh, there is a part of this that is for their sake. He is doing it for them. But very clearly here in 36, he's saying, I'm not doing it just for you. I'm not doing it only for your sake. Rather, he says repeatedly in Ezekiel 36 and 37 that his actions are all intent to convey to his people and the nations that he is the Lord so that he can then restore everyone. The consistent narrative of scripture and certainly represented in the exilic literature, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, is this repeated reason for why God made his covenant and promise with Abraham in the first place. In Genesis 12, he says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, so that my blessings will flow to the nations. It just wasn't back and forth. God's people, God is for his people. But the story is so much larger. It's not just about the Israelites. It's not just about us. God created and repeatedly restored Israel so that they would be able to restore justice, mercy, and love in the places that they had influence to their, re their region that their life, their journey, and even their trials would bring about a testimony that could invite others into relationship with God. We see this in the story of Rahab, right? The, the spies go in, Rahab sees them and says, I've heard about you, I wanna be a part of this. That's what God is longing for, that everyone would know that he is the Lord and be in relationship with him. Two weeks ago, after about 10 months of data gathering and conversation, my family and I made this final decision that my nephew, who has some special needs, is going to come live with me and go to school here, at a particular school here in Seattle. I cried daily for about a week straight. Do not be worried about that. I'm a, I'm a crier. Any strong emotion comes out of my eyes. Uh, very familiar to me. Not too, not too worried. 
But I cried a week straight partially because I cannot imagine how my life needs to change to live with a 14-year-old on a regular basis. Like, what do Tuesdays look like now? Especially to do that as a single parent. Partially I cried too because I also got the tuition amount, and it's that mind-blowing amount that is one of those impossible without God numbers. And partially, I cried because the people I told who've been a part of this kid's story, who've been walking with me for the last three years, were all totally invested and encouraging and kept saying, yes, we too think that this is the direction you, can go, you should go in, confirming what my family and I had thought God was saying, but it's so crazy that you really want other people to agree with you because if there's any way to get out of it, you're like, I'm out. Uh, but all of these people were like, no, you're in, and we're in with you. At one point, a very good friend said very clearly, which, which is what I appreciated, she said, you know that, that this is gonna be okay, right? Has anyone told you that this is gonna be fine? And I, I thought there, and I was like, well, no one actually has said that so far, thank you for saying that. And I said, you know, I think I know, but I don't think I know, because I cannot see how this is gonna work out. Like, I do not see what Tuesdays are going to look like. I do not see where this, these funds are going to come from. Like, I get it, but I don't know. She went on to say some sort of like, I don't know either, but I know God is going to do this. There's no doubt that this is what you should do. You're not in this by yourself. We all support you. We love your nephew. I couldn't exactly hear what she was saying because I went back to crying. But the, the point is, is that upon reflection of both Ezekiel and these conversations, I thought that, oh yeah, this is my story and my nephew's story. God is doing something through us. I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't see my role as a passive one. I've been pounding the pavement, looking at side hustles, seeing what I can do to make this work, opening up my mind to how God might want to creatively act but I also realize that this isn't just our story, that this is God's story, this is God's testimony. The situation is not just about us, but it's what God is doing in our community, how he's inviting the particular people around us to be a part and what that will say about who he is. And some of those people are very devoted Christians who love us with their whole Jesus-loving heart, and some of them love us with their whole not Jesus-loving heart. They don't know God and are still a part of this and investing in us. This part of the comfort of being bound to a God and knowing that he has a plan for his people to restore the nations around us and that this is his story. That for all the trials, challenges, and uncertainties we face, that he's crafting a testimony through our lives and he is a God who restores his people. And the nations will know that he is God. That's so comforting and such a powerful story. So remember in Ezekiel, in this particular chapter, it's about second chances, but not about what humanity is supposed, that humanity is just supposed to try harder or at least just try again. Maybe you'll get it this time. It's not about continuing to do the same thing that they've always done. Rather, here in Ezekiel, God begins to tell a new story of how these second chances will be approached. That restoration will come about for them, the people of God, and the nations around them by replacing people's hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, putting the spirit in them. God is a God of intimate presence. The 
only solution for hard-heartedness of humankind is a heart transplant. We can't figure it out on our own. We can't fake it. We can't think of a new five-step plan. We have to have a heart transplant. We recall that God could have just restored Israel to their land. Everyone would have been happy, wouldn't have known anything more. But God wanted the nations to see the entirety of the kind of God he is. The land was not enough. He wanted a total transformation of his people so that they could fully live into the lives that he had planned for them, which would mean new hearts. Would mean replacing hard hearts, the ones that somehow had justified oppressing the poor, with hearts of flesh, that of the Spirit of God that would allow them to do things different, to be different than they had been before. History shows us that hard-heartedness always results in injustice, whether that's in ways we treat ourselves or ways we treat each other. And in some ways, I think we use hard-heartedness to, to, as a kind of a survival technique, that we, we callous ourselves about this or that, not because we truly hate it or are fine with injustice, but really who has the time or energy to care that much about everything that's going on in the world? We worried that it would be too hard on us, that if we cared about everything like that, would we even ever get out of bed in the morning? But a heart of flesh, the spirit of God in us, doesn't call us as individuals to fix every single problem. It does, however, invite us to be fully where we are, looking for where God is at work and joining him there, being humble, teachable, and kind, so what is God doing around you? What are the injustices that you see at work? What are the injustices you see on your way to work as you're moving about throughout the city? There's a huge list. Homelessness, poverty, mental illness, abuse. Those are just the ones I saw on the drive to work today. There is something that you're doing already that God is inviting you to. Keep doing that. Maybe if you're not doing anything yet, there's something that God wants to invite you to be a part of. For the Israelites, the phrasing that's found in verse 26, a new spirit I will put in you, would have been really compelling language to the Hebrew ear because it's this juxtaposition with where the spirit of God has always dwelled, in the ark, in the temple. And here, the Spirit of God is being directly given to his people, which is remarkable. It's now tied to his people, no matter where they are. This harkens the Israelite mind back to Joel 2, 28-29, when we hear this for the first time. God, I, God will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. This is a pretty new concept for the Hebrew people and a way that God is promising to be with them in the midst of their trial. He creatively continues to be himself, even when the pieces on the board change, even when the whole game itself changes. There's nothing that will stop him from being himself. It's tempting in our particular present-day context to imagine that social ills or injustice will be healed entirely by economic, social, and educational programs, that that's the solution. They are very important, obviously. They are ways in which God allows us to participate in what he's doing, but Ezekiel is like radically focused on God, and he finds the answer in God alone. Again, we need efforts to advance the social condition of all humankind, but without new hearts, we won't solve the fundamental problem. 
that of our hard-heartedness. Without new hearts, we run the risk of the social reforms becoming our idols, and then we're in the same place that the Israelites were in. The only possibility of change is because we're bound to God. Because we have his image, we're in covenant with him to his purpose for the world, and we have the presence of his spirit in our lives, an ongoing spirit that is constantly replacing the stone parts of our heart with flesh. This text in Ezekiel is told through the language of complete restoration that's coming in the future, and it is intense. Chapter 26 is very beautiful, but it is not yet fulfilled. It's been fulfilled in part, and it's, again, it holds profound hope, is beautiful. It's not just of God's constant love, but a testimony that cannot be extinguished with loss, that no loss can extinguish it. But how these promises will be filled remain an open question. There are multiple times this week that I was like, let's jump to 37. There's a party going on with the dry bones there. Much easier. It'll be very celebratory. But this too is celebratory. We just don't know what the answer is. We don't know what it will look like. From our vantage point in history, we know that the promise of the Spirit was fulfilled in Acts 2, 14 to 21. But this complete restoration has not happened yet. The entirety of the story we're waiting to unfold. I think the challenge for us, just like the Israelites in Babylon, is that we have the potential out of our own fear that we don't know the rest of the story. We don't know how long we're going to be in these trials, in these places of hardship, when this total restoration is going to come, how long we'll have to wait for partial restoration, So the question in our places of hopelessness, hard-heartedness, and rough circumstances is will we trust that God is who he says he is? One who restores because he's bound to his people. He's bound to us. One who has a larger purpose and vision to redeem the whole earth, his people and the surrounding nations, and that he is intimately close through the presence of his Holy Spirit. Join me in prayer. Lord God, we reflect so many stories in this room, and Lord, we thank you that you are a unique and special God who cares a lot about who we are and the places that we are. Lord, I pray that for those of us who are in a place of celebration, that we would be able to amply celebrate. Lord, for those of us who are in a more challenging space, whether we can see the end or not, or the end has changed places multiple times, Lord, I pray that we would lean into you, that we would be challenged to trust you, and you would find yourself who you say you are. Lord, we pray that as a community, we would be encouraging the folks in this, that we would help people find you, and we would celebrate the stories that are the testimony of you. In your name, amen.